Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. And all for the sake of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior, the head of the church and the Lord of all. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them please to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning a new section of this epistle today. I say a new section because Paul begins a new line of thought, a reminder that when this letter was originally written, when all the epistles were originally written, there were no chapter divisions. When Paul wrote letters to the churches, he didn't write with chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Those were divisions that were put in roughly around the time of the Middle Ages in an effort to make the reading of the Scripture and, in particular, the memorization of the Scripture easier for us. But it is a new section that Paul begins here, a new line of thought, and you can see it pretty clearly. So we're going to go ahead and read through the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul begins this new section of Ephesians chapter 3 by speaking of the fact that he is a prisoner. Now that was both figuratively and literally true. Now Paul makes it very clear here that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus and for the sake of the Gentiles. In a sense, there is a figurative aspect to that. Uh, he is a slave to Christ Jesus. Paul makes this point elsewhere. He is compelled by Christ Jesus to be engaged in the work of the gospel. So in that sense, Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But it is also literally true that Paul was a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus and for the Gentiles. In fact, at the time that he was writing this epistle, and you may recall when we first began our study of Ephesians, we took a look at the background of this letter. We pointed out that Paul was writing this letter from a prison cell. This is around the year 60 A.D., he was quite literally incarcerated in Rome, being held, expecting trial before the emperor Nero 
himself. So when Paul writes here, for this reason, I am a prisoner, uh, it was literally the case. He was imprisoned in the Mamertine jail, which was about the worst place that a person could be held in Rome at that time. What is interesting is that Paul simply doesn't describe himself as a prisoner. He says that he is a prisoner specifically for Christ Jesus and on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, why is Paul a prisoner because of the Gentiles? Well, if you go back to the book of Acts, you quickly discover why. Paul, of course, had been commissioned by that church in Antioch. He and Barnabas had gone off on their first missionary journey. They had preached the gospel through the Galatian churches, now what is portions of Turkey. And uh, then, after that first missionary journey, they had been summoned to Jerusalem. Uh, They had gone to the Jerusalem Council, where Paul had engaged in a debate with the other apostles about the role and the place of Gentiles in the life of the Christian church. Then he had been sent off on a second missionary journey, this time no longer with Barnabas. He and Barnabas had a parting of the ways. Barnabas went off to Cyprus. Paul went off in other places on a second missionary journey. And ultimately, some would argue that he went off on a third missionary journey as well. And it was through these missionary journeys that Paul had ultimately transformed the ancient world and established churches. And you've heard me say many times before, you and I are here today in large measure because of the ministry and the efforts of the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel among the Greco-Roman world and to the Greek people, the Greek-speaking people, the Greek-minded people. But while Paul is certainly remembered as the apostle to the Gentiles, we can't forget that Paul also had a great heart for his own people. You know, sometimes when you read through the New Testament, you get the impression that Peter was the apostle to the Jews and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, what's interesting there is the first apostle to actually preach the gospel to the Gentiles was not Paul. The first of the apostles to actually preach the gospel to the Gentiles was Peter. Peter went to Cornelius' house. Remember, he had that great vision of the sheep being let down out of heaven with all those animals on it, and he was told to kill and eat them. And then he heard a knocking at the door when he came to, and there were these men from the home of a Roman soldier, Cornelius. And Peter had gone to Cornelius' house, and there he had opened to them the scripture and were told that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So Peter was actually, even though we assume that he is the one who is the minister to the Jews, he was actually the first of the apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's first ministry was not among the Gentiles, but among the Jews. And what's interesting is that even though he would ultimately go off and become the great apostle to the Gentiles, he still had a great heart for his own people. In fact, on one occasion in his epistle to the Romans, Paul said that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ for eternity for the sake of his own people. He had such a love for the Jewish people. He said they have the covenants, they have the promises, they have all of the assets, but unfortunately they have not embraced the Messiah. And he had a great heart for his own people. And one of the things that Paul was doing is he traveled throughout the Gentile world and as he proclaimed the gospel and established churches was that he was collecting money for the Jewish Christians who were suffering greatly in Jerusalem. And Paul's great plan was to reconcile these two factions of the church, the Gentile faction and the Jewish faction. Uh, He wanted to bring them together. There were factions in the early church just as there are factions in the church today. Those of you who came out of the Anglican tradition, you know that we used to have high churchmen and we had low churchmen and we had broad churchmen. 
You know, the high and the hazy, the low and the lazy, and the middle and the crazy. That's what they used to call them. Well, there were factions in the early church as well, and Paul hated to see these factions, and what he really wanted to do was to bring these two competing factions, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, together. And so, as he went throughout the Gentile world, he collected what was known as the Jerusalem Fund, money that he was going to take back to Jerusalem and give to the church there that was suffering greatly. And when they said, where is this money from? He was going to say, well, it's from your brothers and sisters. And they'd say, brothers and sisters where? And he'd say, brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Ephesus, yes. And Philippi, Philippi, yes. And Corinth, Corinth, really? Your Gentile brothers and sisters. And Paul thought that this would be a way of bringing down the dividing wall of hostility, part of the dividing wall that he talks about here in Ephesians chapter 2. But you've all heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem with that money, uh, he was immediately uh, approached by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem who were concerned that Paul was gaining a reputation for undermining the Jewish traditions. And so they encouraged him to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice and uh, assure the Jewish believers uh, that he was not trying to undermine the law of Moses. But we're told that when Paul was on his way up to the temple on that occasion, he was immediately attacked by a crowd who accused him, falsely I might add, of taking Gentiles into the temple precincts. That was the charge that was brought against him. He was bringing Gentiles into the temple precincts. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago here in this study of Ephesians. We said that that was against the law. There were all these signs that were posted around the temple complex that said trespassers will not be prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Uh, there was only one section of the temple complex into which Gentiles were permitted to go, and that was the outer court. They were not permitted to go into the court of women. They were not permitted to go into the court of Israel where the Jewish men could go, and they certainly were not permitted to go into the court of the priests where only the priests could go. They could stay in that outer perimeter, but it was several levels below these other courts, and that's where Gentiles were supposed to be. And it was a reminder that they were not part of the covenant community. And Paul was accused of taking Gentiles not into that court, but into the inner courts. And the result was that he was arrested. Now, he wasn't actually doing that. In fact, it was quite the opposite, but that was the charge that was brought against him. You know that the crowd almost ripped him limb from limb, except for the timely interruption of the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem. He was then taken to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, where he was imprisoned for about three years without a trial. And finally, when he realized that he was getting nowhere and that there were those who were actually conspiring to take his life, Paul appealed, as was his right as a Roman citizen, to Caesar. And the Roman governor decided to send him to Rome, and that's where we find Paul. So when he says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, there is a sense in which that was quite literally true. The reason why he was in Rome, the reason why he was standing trial before the emperor Nero, and if you know anything about Nero, you know he was by no means friendly to the Christian cause. A great persecution erupted during the reign of Nero. The whole reason for Paul going through this difficulty was because of the Gentiles. So it was quite literally true that he was a prisoner, that he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus, that is for the sake of the gospel and on behalf of 
of the Gentiles. Now, if you think about it, this is a remarkable turn of events in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you think about Paul's life in Judaism before his conversion, this is a radical 180-degree turn. I mean, think about Paul's life before this. Paul initially had hated Jesus Christ. Paul was not just indifferent or lukewarm in regard to Jesus Christ prior to his encounter on the road to Damascus. We're told he hated Jesus Christ. Now keep your finger there in Ephesians for just a minute and turn back to Acts chapter 9, which tells the story of Paul's conversion. This is one of the pivotal events in the history of the Christian church. One might go so far as to say that next to the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, the conversion of the Apostle Paul is the next significant event. And chapter 9 of Acts, which tells the story of Paul's conversion, begins this way. But Saul, and that was his name in Judaism, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any there belonging to the way, that's what the early church was referred to as the way, because Jesus, of course, had claimed to be what? The way, the truth, and the life. So we're told that Paul was breathing murderous threats against the followers of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus that he found any there belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man, and this is no exaggeration, was the Heinrich Himmler of his day. He was a man who was hell-bent, quite literally, on systematically dismantling the Christian church in those early days. He hated Christ. He was not indifferent. He despised Christ. He believed that the Christian message was undermining the Jewish faith. He believed that it was a damnable deceit, literally leading people astray, and the only way to deal with it was to stamp it out. And that's what he was intent on doing. He reviled Christ. And now you get to Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul describes himself as being a prisoner for Christ. That is a radical transformation. Not only that, but as a Pharisee, and that's what Paul had been raised as, as a Pharisee, an expert in the Jewish law. He had despised the Gentiles. The Gentiles were regarded as unclean, uncircumcised dogs. Now, we live in an age in which we love dogs. You know, people love animals and pets, and we've got all kinds. In fact, I was walking up King Street just yesterday, and I saw somebody out there collecting money in front of a shop to benefit homeless animals. And two storefronts up was a homeless man begging for money. Uh, that, that's the world in which we live, isn't it? And people love animals and love dogs. But you have to understand, in the first century world, generally speaking, dogs were not regarded as pets, family pets. They roamed the streets. Um, if you go over to this portion of um, the world today, if you go to portions of Greece today, you'll see wild dogs still running around in places like Corinth. And they are not the kind of dogs that you want to go up and you want to touch. Uh, if you do, you are likely to be bitten. And that's the way the Gentiles were regarded by the Jews. They were unclean.
They were uncircumcised. They were no better than dogs. And even though we love animals today, if somebody calls you a dog, you know that that is not a compliment. Certainly if you're a lady and somebody says you're a dog, that is not a compliment. We recognize that's an insult. And that's how the Gentiles were regarded. And yet Paul tells us here that he's become a prisoner. And the chances of his being released from Rome were slim to none. We know that ultimately Paul would be martyred there in Rome. He would be taken out along the Appian Way, that main thoroughfare leading into Rome, and he would be what? He would be beheaded. So he was a prisoner, and ultimately he would become a martyr for Christ Jesus, whom he had previously hated, and for the Gentiles whom he had formerly persecuted. Now you say, well, what accounts for this change in the life of this man? I mean, Paul would go on to have a great impact upon the world. What what transformed him? Well, of course, one answer to that is his encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, described there in Acts chapter 9. He encountered Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. But that encounter with Jesus Christ revealed something to Paul that he did not know up to this point. He describes it as a mystery. He says, a mystery was revealed to me. In fact, you'll notice here in Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul uses that word mystery no less than four times in the short span of 13 verses. First of all, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So there's the first use of the word mystery. He goes on in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And then you skip on down to verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says there was a radical change in my life I had a complete reorientation. I, who had hated Jesus Christ, fell in love with Jesus Christ. I, who had persecuted the Gentiles, suddenly became one who would be a minister to the Gentiles. And what accounts for that? Yes, he said, I encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. All of that is true. He said, but when I encountered Jesus Christ, he revealed to me a mystery that had previously been hidden. Now, the Greek word here that is translated as mystery is an interesting word. We've already talked about it because Paul has used it earlier in the epistle to the Ephesians. It's the Greek word mysterion. And it does not mean just what we mean by mystery today. When we think of a mystery, we think of a what? A whodunit. We think of an Agatha Christie novel. We, We think of a conundrum, a puzzle, something that has to be worked out. But that's not what mystery meant in the ancient world. The Greek word mysterion meant something that was hidden from most people but was revealed to the initiated. And the best way I know how to describe this is to say that it's similar to one of those fraternal lodges that a person might join. You know, if you join the the, the Masons or if you join uh, one of those animal lodges, the moose or the elk or whatever it is, you know that they have their own private ceremonies and traditions and all of that sort of thing, their handshakes and that sort of thing, and you do not know what those are. Now, you know that those organizations exist, 
But you really don't know what goes on inside the lodge until you become what? Initiated in. And then the secrets of the organization, whether it's the Eastern Star or the Blue Lodge or whatever it is, you are introduced into those traditions. Well, that's what the word mystery meant. In the ancient world, there were a number of religions known as mystery religions. People knew that the religions existed, but they didn't know exactly what went on inside the temples or the places of worship unless you were initiated. What Paul is saying to us here is that he had a radical transformation in his life, a new reorientation, and it was because he had encountered Jesus Christ and something that had been hidden from him was suddenly revealed to him, and mystery was made known. And what is that mystery? Well, first of all, he describes that as the mystery of Christ in verse 4. The mystery of Christ, which is to say that it was something that was hidden in previous ages, but has now been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that God has been doing something in the history of the world that has been hidden in ages past, but has suddenly come to light in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. He said, and what also has become known is that this mystery of what God is doing in Christ Jesus is that the Gentiles, who had been uncircumcised, unclean dogs, were suddenly becoming heirs with Israel. Members, he says in verse 6, of the same body and partakers of the same promise. And this is all happening, he says, in Christ Jesus. And he said this, and this is the next mystery that was revealed to him, This is what God ultimately has in mind for the purpose of the church. That is what the church is doing. To bring to light, verse 9, everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What Paul is saying is that God has a plan for the world. And that plan has been hidden, but it has now come to light in the person of Jesus Christ. And what that plan is, is that Jews and Gentiles should be reconciled, that all people should be brought together under the lordship of one king, and that is Jesus Christ. And they should live together in one fellowship, and that one fellowship is the church, Christ's body on earth. And the purpose of that church is to go out and to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Paul says that is God's great plan for history. Now this is very important because we're living in an age which most people don't think history is of any value or significance whatsoever. I mean, really people have very little regard for history. You see this, I think, in so many quarters, this this whole controversy about tearing down monuments, whether it be Confederate memorials or whether it be a monument to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. I've always thought that this is a strange phenomenon for Americans. You know, the British don't wrestle with this sort of thing. You go to London and you can have a square out there in front of Parliament and, and you can have a statue of Oliver Cromwell at one end and a statue of Charles I at the other end and somehow they feel that you can live with the tension. Why? Because it's history. It's just what it is. It's not always pretty. It's not always perfect. But it's history. And we can learn 
from it. What's the old expression say? Those who cannot remember the past are destined to relive it. That's what they say. So history has great value and it has great significance, but there are many people who are convinced that it really is of no significance whatsoever. It has no point because you look at the world today and all we see is a succession of just crisis after another. In 1919, Henry Ford, the famous automobile executive, was involved in a libel suit. He was being sued for libel. And uh, a reporter went up to him and they asked him, and they said, well, what do you think? How do you think history's going to remember you? And his response is, history is bunk. And they said, do you really believe that? He said, yes, I do. He said, history is nothing more than the succession of one damn thing after another. <laughs> That's how Henry Ford regarded history. Now, two of the most influential historians of the 20th century, uh, the German historian Oswald Spengler and the English historian Arnold Toynbee, both wrote books that were regarded as great, great books on the history and the philosophy of history in the world. And both of those historians insisted that history is really nothing more than a cycle. It's the same idea that the Greeks had. The Greeks believed that history had no purpose whatsoever. Really, life had no purpose. Things just went in a great circle. It was like the seasons of the year. Spring turns into what? Summer. Summer turns into what? Fall. Fall turns into winter. And winter does what? Back into spring again. And you just do the whole thing all over again. And basically, that's what the Greeks believed. And these two historians argued the same thing. That there is the rise of empires, there is a plateau of empires, there is a decline of empires, and then there's a fall of empires. But eventually then what happens? New empires begin to rise and they plateau and they decline and they fall. And basically they said this is exactly what we are seeing in Western culture today. Now what's interesting is that they wrote those works, Spengler wrote his works, in the 1930s. As he saw the rise of Nazism. And Toynbee wrote his book in the 1970s, in the post-World War II year. And yet both of them saw the same thing, this sort of rise and plateau and decline and fall of empires. And they projected that what you saw in the past you will see in the future again. You saw it with the Egyptian empire, there was a rise a great plateau, a decline, and a fall. What do we remember of the Egyptian empire today? Nothing. You go and you see the, the remnants of that great empire. If you go to Cairo, you can see the pyramids, you can see the Sphinx. But Egypt is by no means the great empire that it was at the time that the Hebrews were slaves, making bricks without straw. Then there were the rise of the Persian empire, and that, of course, is no more. There was the rise of the Roman empire that everybody thought would last forever, but the Roman empire is no more. We only have vestiges of its glory, the rise of Nazi Germany, the rise of the French Empire, the rise of the British Empire, you name it, the rise of the American Empire. But basically what these historians are saying is that sooner or later all empires go the way of the dodo. So history has no purpose, it has no direction, it's just a succession of one damn thing after another, quite literally. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly did not believe that. Paul believed that history does have a purpose. And you've heard me talk about this before. 
Paul believed that history had a definite beginning. That was God created the world, he created it good. There was a time of decline, that is true, but history came back with a vengeance when God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. That was the high point of human history when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And history will have a grand and glorious climax when Christ returns in glory. So there is purpose, there is direction to history. I've said to you before, it's, it's like, for me, it's like the 1812 Overture. You know, the 1812 Overture, which we always play at the 4th of July, which is strange because it has nothing to do with the 4th of July, and it has nothing to do with American history. Tchaikovsky wrote that piece of music to describe the French invasion of Russia during the Napoleonic Wars. But you think about that piece of music, and you've heard me say this before, but it's important to just get a picture of this because it's Paul's whole argument about the purpose and the place of the church in history. That piece of music begins very plaintively. If you've ever heard the 1812 Overture, it begins, and you can hear it playing in the background, God Save the Tsar, which at that time was the Imperial National Anthem. It begins very quietly. Dun, 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 You know the piece of music? And then what happens? Well, it tells the story of the French as they invade Russia. They are going to Moscow to capital, to the capital to capture it. And then, you know, the piece of music begins to build. And as it begins to build, you can hear in the background the French, the Marseillaise. And you can hear church bells ringing. They're sounding the toxin, the, the, the call to alarm. And then you reach that point where there are bells ringing and you can hear cannons going off. And if you've ever seen it perform live, they actually fire real cannons sometimes. It's impressive. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And you think, wow, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden, the piece of music, which you think that's the climax, it gets soft again. It goes on for several stanzas, and it's, it's soft. It's quiet. And you think, well, that's the end of it. History reaches a high point, and then there's a decline. But if you know the 1812 Overture, you know that's not the end. There is a climax, and it is glorious. And you can hear the church bells ringing, but they're no longer ringing in alarm. They're ringing in victory. And you can hear cannons going off, but they are no longer being fired in anger. They're being fired in salute. And the 1812 Overture ends gloriously. That's why we love it. And everybody's standing up and cheering. That's what history is like, the Apostle Paul says. It began plaintively. God created the heavens and the earth. And things became quiet for centuries. But then there was this grand period in the middle when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus walked among us. And he began to make all things new. And yes, since Christ has returned, things seem to have become quiet again. But there will come that moment when there will be a glorious finale when he who came in great humility will come with great power and glory to judge the quick and the dead and to set the world right. And Paul says that is what God is doing in history. And in that period between the high point and the ultimate climax is the age of the church. He says Christ and the church are the center of history. 
And Toynbee, who I mentioned a moment ago, pointed this out when he noted the way that we in the Western world, somebody out there, is it? it's another voice. Uh, it's, it's Paul. Well, then, let me step aside. When he pointed out the way that we Christians measure time, he said, unlike any other people in the world, the West measures time not from a fixed point at a beginning, which runs along on a line to the right continuously. Now that's how the Jews measure time. They measure time from a fixed point, and that fixed point is the creation of the world. That's how the Jewish calendar works. In the Western world, we do not measure time from a fixed point on the left side of the line that runs on continuously to the right. We measure time from a fixed point in the center, don't we? And we measure time forward and backward from that central point. Everything that came before that point we call B.C., which means before Christ. And everything that comes after that point as A.D., what does it mean? Anno Domini. What does that mean? In the year of our Lord, that's right. Now, sometimes what is interesting, uh, in modern textbooks you'll see, because they don't want to show any favor toward, favoritism toward Christianity, they have replaced B.C. and A.D. So B.C. is now B.C.E., which means what? Before the common era. And A.C.E., which means after the common era or whatever. Now here's what's interesting. It doesn't make a difference whether you call it B.C. or A.D. Or you call it B.C.E. or A.C.E. The world is still measuring time from a fixed point, and that fixed point is what? The arrival of Jesus Christ. So even those who want to impose a secular agenda on the history of the world still have to measure time from that fixed point. That's important for us to understand as Christians that history is not meaningless, that it is not cyclical, that God is at work, He does have a plan, and He does have a purpose. There was a mystery that was hidden in ages past, but it has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and at the heart of that mystery is the ministry of the church. You and I should be praying for the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the litigation, and I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about that great kingdom which Christ has established and is his means for transforming the world. John Stott put it this way. This is a rather long quote, so I've broken it up. He says, secular history concentrates its attention on kings, queens, and presidents, on politicians and generals, in fact, on VIPs. Now, pick up a history textbook, and that's true, isn't it? It's about what? It's about... Queens and presidents, politicians, generals, very important people. The Bible, however, concentrates on a group it calls the saints. Often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time God's people. 
and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well known to God. Secular history concentrates on wars, battles, peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the peace treaty ratified by His blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. Again, secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory, and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates, rather, on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claims nothing less than the whole world for Christ, and whose empire will never come to an end. That's the Christian view of history. It's not just about individual wars, individual battles. It is the great war, the struggle between good and evil. It is not just about rising and falling kingdoms. It is about that kingdom which has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ that is ever expanding wherever the church goes, that kingdom which will have no end. It is not just about kings and sovereigns who will appear for a time and disappear. It is about that king who is eternal, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And as ministers of the church, when I say ministers of the church, I'm not talking about those in callers. I'm talking about us. As the saints, you and I are part of that grand story, and we have a part to play in it. Somebody has described history as a great cosmic drama that is being played out on a stage across the centuries. And every single one of us as Christians has a part to play in that drama. Now, some of us have rather small, insignificant, bit parts. If you ever been to a play, you know there's always the butler. And unless he did it, his part is rather insignificant. But he has a part to play. Some parts are important parts. You get top billing. People like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had big parts to play. But the point is that if you are a Christian, you are a saint. The word Christian and the word saint are interchangeable in the New Testament. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. doesn't mean you're perfect, just means you're sanctified. You are a Christian and you have a part to play in this great drama which is unfolding. You are on the stage of history right now, and the question is, will you play your part? Will you say your lines, the lines that God has appointed you to say as a part of this great drama? Or will you fumble your opportunity? And here's the thing, you only get one chance on the stage. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, maybe I missed my chance. How many of you are still alive Looking at you, I'm not so sure, but I want to know this morning, how many of you are still alive? If you are alive, if you've got breath in your body, you are still on the stage. You still have lines to speak. You still have a part to play in this great drama which is unfolding across history. And the angels and the archangels and the whole company of heaven are peering down to see how it's going to unfold. 
That's what history is all about. And all these other things that we study in school, which are important, don't get me wrong. You all know I'm a great lover of history. I, I employ history in every sermon the way Brian employs C.S. Lewis in every sermon. <laughs> Somehow it finds its way in because I believe that history is important. But I want you to understand it's not just about these little things, things that we regard as big, big because they are happening in our lifetime. But history is about God's great drama, what God has been doing across the ages, across the nations, through and in spite of the empires. Well, what is it that God is doing? What was this mystery exactly that was revealed to Paul? Here's what the church is to be about. This is what God is doing in the church. He is bringing genuine peace and reconciliation to the world. This is what our job is. This is the part that we are to play in this great drama. We are to bring genuine peace and reconciliation to the world. If peace treaties between nations could do it, we wouldn't have any wars. But we've had many peace treaties and many wars and more peace treaties and more wars. And despite man's best efforts, somehow we cannot bring peace to the world. But the church is designed to bring true peace and true reconciliation to the world. Why? Because it's not a matter of changing people's minds. Minds are fickle things, folks. They will switch back. A person can change their mind one minute, and it can turn back the next. This is one of the reasons why I love Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Let me ask you a question. When did the prodigal son really have a change of heart? When he was desperate. In other words, he went out and he spent his inheritance... And in the first century world, if you went to your dad and said, I want my inheritance, that was like saying to them in a Middle Eastern culture, I wish you were dead. The father could have disinherited him and thrown him out right then. But the father didn't. He gave him his inheritance, and the boy went out and he what? He squandered all of his money on loose living. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that is. You've got an imagination. You can imagine what loose living is. He goes out and he spends all of his money in loose living, and he finally declines to a point where he has what? Lost everything. And when the money draw, dries up, so do his friends. And he is in a desperate place doing what? Eating pig's food and feeding the pigs and longing for the pods that the pigs were feeding on. Now, that would not have been lost on a Jewish audience in the first century. Oh, that's a pretty low point. And he says to himself, the text says he came to his senses. He said, I will go home and be a slave in my father's household. I'd be better off as a slave than in this situation. And so he goes home. Now, everybody thinks, and Miss M, you gave the right answer. So I want you to understand that when I tell you that you, you passed the test. <laughs> I want you to understand that because I'm going to tell you you flunked the course. But you, you passed the <laughs> test here, and here's why. He does have a change of mind. But that's not the same thing as a change of heart. Why is he going back to his father? Because he's desperate and he's in a bad place and he'd be better off. But he's not going back out of any great love for his father. He's not going back because he necessarily realizes he did the wrong thing. He's going back because he's in a bad place. 
And as closer he gets to his dad, the more anxious he becomes. Now, what's dad going to do to me? I'm willing to go back and be a slave, but what if dad doesn't want to accept me back at all? What's going to happen to me? And the story is so remarkable because we are told that as he's making his way back to his father's house, his father sees him on the road and runs out to meet him. Now understand, in a Middle Eastern culture in the first century, no man ran to his son. That was beneath his dignity. And of course, they wore long robes, so he had to hike up his skirts in order to run. That was such a demeaning act on his part. It also tells us that in spite of the fact that the son had wandered far afield of his father, the father never stopped looking for him. And the father went out and met him on the road, and what? Slammed the door in his face? Remember that line from My Fair Lady? He gets so mad he said he wants to slam the door in her face, in Eliza Doolittle's face, and let the hellcat freeze. And that's what he could have done, but he didn't. He did what? He put a mantle about his son's shoulder, he put a ring on his finger, and he went home rejoicing, and he killed the fatted calf. And let me tell you something, that's when the boy got from his father not what he deserved, what he didn't deserve, he received grace. And that's when his heart was changed. His mind was changed because of his circumstances. His heart was changed because of a father's love. That is what God is doing in history, and that is the message and the role that the church and we as the saints have to play. Our job is to go out and bring peace to the world, but not peace by means of pieces of paper or by brute force. It is by introducing people to a father's love, a love that loved enough to send his very own son to die for us that we, who were far off, might be brought near. That's what Paul is saying here. And that is the role of the church. And when you begin to change hearts, then you discover that minds and pocketbooks and all those other things that we seem to be concerned about come along as a consequence. What is God doing through the church? He's displaying Christ to the world by Christian people. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, you are Christ's ambassadors. What's an ambassador? A representative of their nation. You and I are Christ's ambassadors. Do you realize that people encounter Christ in us? And if we don't play our part well, they will never come to know Christ because sometimes we are the closest thing that they are ever going to get to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. When you encounter people on the street, when there is a tourist that runs right in front of your car, when your light is green, do they see Jesus Christ in you? When you're caught between that carriage and that appointment you've got to get to, do they see Christ in you? We are Christ's ambassadors. That's what Paul says. That's our job. That's the role we play. Are you saying your lines? What is God doing in the church? He's showing that it's in losing our lives. We're going to hear a sermon on that today from Andrew. It's in giving up that we find. This is the great irony. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it ultimately, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will ever surely find it. There are lots of people out there desperate to find happiness, but happiness is an elusive butterfly, my friends. It flits from one thing to the next and it is always dependent on your circumstances. What the world offers is happiness. What Christ offers is joy 
which is not dependent on your circumstances. It transcends that. What is the church doing? It is showing us the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers. The rulers think they have the answer to all of life's problems. This is why we get so hopeful in a presidential election. You'd think we'd learn. How will peace ever come to this world? How will the kingdoms of this world ever become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? How is it that desperate people, lonely people, searching people will ever find true joy, that peace which passes human understanding? They will only find it, my friends, if they come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. And they will only come to know him if you and I are playing our part, if the church, being the centerpiece of history, is going out and doing its work. What is God doing in the church? I'll tell you what God is doing in the church. He is rewriting the history of the fall of man. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 for just a minute. It's appropriate. It's the last book of the Bible. I'm sorry to keep you. but it's important. Revelation chapter 21. And behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what God is doing in history, my friends. Through the church, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God is wiping away the tears from every eye. He is bringing the nations to their knees. He is making all things new. And you have a part to play. When you go out from here this morning, the question is, will you play your part? Will you say your lines? Will you pass the legacy on? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that history is not meaningless. It is not bunk. You have a plan and a purpose, a mystery that was hidden in ages past but has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed in the church, his body on earth. Grant us the grace as the members of that body, as the hands and the feet, the eyes and the mouth of Christ to go forth from this place to show the love of Christ, the love of a father to a prodigal world that there may be peace on earth that there may be joy in people's hearts, that the tears from every eye may be wiped away. For we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.
All right, thank you.